Michael Huerta was the administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration from 2013 to 2018. He also held senior positions in the Department of Transportation during the Clinton administration. Today, he will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the travel industry, specifically air travel, and what consequences and safety measures we can expect to see in the future. Let's listen in. Thanks to everyone for joining us and thanks to No Labels for uh, putting this forum together. I've been an admirer of the organization and you all do great work. I'm gonna spend a little bit talking about the impact on the travel industry and then what the road back looks like and then uh, talk a little bit about some of the questions that I think need to be answered. You know, first of all, there, there is absolutely no impact or no question that the travel industry has been devastated by this pandemic. Not only have the impacts been severe, but the speed at which the impacts have been felt has been especially dramatic. Based on my experience, I'm going to focus my comments primarily on the airlines, but I think it's fair to say that they reflect impacts on the travel sector as a whole. So to set the stage, yesterday the FAA handled 21,888 flights. On a typical day this time of year, that number should have been a little over 59,000 flights. So there's been a 63% reduction. While the impacts vary somewhat by city, the traffic has dropped basically everywhere. Probably the most dramatic was at New York's LaGuardia Airport. Yesterday, they handled 73 flights, down from an expected level of 1,137. Reagan National Airport in Washington hosted 122 flights, down from 886. Among the core airports, Salt Lake City is the relative bright spot, reflecting its status as a connecting hub for the Mountain West, but still, it saw only 509 of an expected 790, uh, or 979 flights. When you look at the numbers of passengers carried, the drop is even more dramatic. According to Airlines for America, after gains of about 5% in January and February, air travel had declined to just 7% of those levels last week. And that number is a slight increase from where things were just a month ago. Passenger volumes for US airlines have declined in every region of the globe. We first started to see these declines in traffic to and from Asia in late January, but by early March, every region began to experience steep declines. Now, as restrictions are lifted, we should not expect a rapid rebound in air travel. Instead, air travel will probably lag in the recovery. And there are two reasons for this. First, we all know that the economic hit to individuals and companies has been very, very significant. For companies facing an economic downturn, travel is often one of the first things cut and among the last to be restored. For leisure travelers, individuals and families affected will first want to focus on paying off debt and getting their household finances in order. So people traveling will be people who have a more urgent need to travel. However, economics are only part of the story. There's also the need to address customer concerns about their personal health and safety. 
The airlines and their airport partners are addressing that by stepping up cleaning practices, modifying operations to include more spacing, and they're doing very public messaging campaigns to announce these changes. The airlines have been limiting passenger loads, keeping middle seats empty. They've changed boarding practices to help avoid crowding at gate areas and boarding bridges. Gloves and masks have become the norm, both for employees and passengers at airports and on aircraft. But traffic recovery is going to be based on building public confidence. And the consensus is that customer confidence will probably not be addressed until there's a vaccine. And so that means that the road back will be a long one, taking several years. Looking at those longer term prospects, the airlines are making historic and long-term capacity cuts. This includes retiring older aircraft and in some instances, entire fleet types. The government, as we know, has provided very significant financial assistance and the airlines have taken dramatic self-help measures with the goal of decreasing their daily cash burn. There are some questions that we need to think about moving forward. The aviation industry has a very, very strong safety culture. Everyone in the industry will say that companies don't compete on safety. What I think we are seeing now is that the definition of aviation safety is changing and how we adapt to that is an important key to the recovery of this industry. We have in the past thought of aviation safety as safety of flight and we've made tremendous advances in that area. Following 9-11, that definition was broadened to include security. And now there's a growing recognition that personal health and safety while traveling is an important consideration for travelers. Now, while we might all agree that steps need to be taken to assure travelers that their health is not in jeopardy if they travel, there is a need to establish consistency in exactly what those steps are. Temperature screening at airports is one example. This has already been implemented at Payne Field in Everett, Washington. And the US airlines have advocated for temperature screening at all US airports. Some people have advocated for immunity passports or some form of health certificate for travelers. And there are those calling for regulations and standards around cleaning and disinfection or developing robust passenger data that can facilitate contact tracing. These are important and these are timely discussions, but they all raise two questions in my mind. First, what should those standards be? And second, who is responsible for their adoption? At the federal government level, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of Health and Human Services all have a role. And then you have operating agencies, such as the Transportation Security Administration and the Federal Aviation Administration. They have some, but not all the regulatory authorities to address these issues. And experts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are of course critical in figuring this out. And there are probably other agencies as well. One thing that has always characterized 
the aviation industry has been collaboration between the government and the private sector. And this needs to be the case in addressing these questions. But strong federal leadership is needed. Many agencies are involved in a broad team effort, but every team needs a leader. And what we need to avoid is a situation where everyone having a role translates to no one being in charge. We need to figure this out and figure this out quickly. And with that, Dan, I'll turn it back to you and we can open it up to our discussion. Well, Michael, that's very, uh, very interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking, I'm digesting what you just said. And uh, I'm pausing only because I want to get back on flights and I want to fly around America and I want to do what I did before. Uh, and if I have to wait for a vaccine, then I'm saying my life's damaged severely. I just, I'm sitting here discouraged because I'm not going to, I don't want to wait for a vaccine. So can, can't we trust that the federal authorities will come up with guidelines and standards so that if someone tells me, Webb, get on a plane, you wear a mask, you wear gloves, and you take your temperature twice, uh, and you'll be okay probably. And we're going to social distance because the airlines are going to leave those middle seats open. If somebody tells me that, I'm going to jump back on planes. I, I am. But will I have the same number of flights? Will I be able to fly from a hub like Chicago all across America and go to cities that I want to go to with a full schedule? I'm just curious, of, or how long is it going to be even before I can think about that? Well, there's a, a couple of questions that are all wrapped up there. I think first and most importantly, uh, the airlines are going to provide service based on the demand that's there. And the demand is going to be determined by people such as yourself. And you are obviously um, very interested in getting on a plane as quickly as possible. But, you know, you might want to see that seat next to you empty. And uh, you might look for some assurance that uh, the person next to you is not sick and potentially a carrier of, um, of coronavirus. And so I think that, um, you know, I think there need we, that the authorities uh, looking at these public health questions have to address it with some degree of urgency, because at the end of the day, we want you back on the airlines as quickly as we can possibly get you back. And that's going to depend on you and your fellow travelers feeling confident when you get on the airplane. And so that's why, you know, the airlines are doing things like blocking middle seats or uh, telling you in a very public way about how they're fogging aircraft and wiping down surfaces. And uh, they've changed boarding practices. They've changed uh, food meal service, all of which is really focused on minimizing contact and trying to maintain some level of social distancing. But passengers represent a spectrum. You might be comfortable with some aspects of that and those things alone are going to entice you back on a flight. Others are going to be more cautious. And what we need to do is ensure that what is put in place are practices that are going to build the confidence of the larger public and get them flying as quickly as possible. Michael, just one more question. Just as far as getting back to normalcy as a frequent flyer, uh, based on your experience, 
realistically, is it your view that until there's a vaccine, the demand for flights is going to be low enough that people like me are going to find far, far fewer choices to fly to major cities from even a big hub like Chicago? Is that going to be the truth? We're, we're just going to have much fewer choices for some time to come. Yeah, I think you're going to have fewer flights. I think from a large hub in Chicago, you're going to have a lot of choices. You may just not, it may be that you don't have them every hour as you're used to in terms of getting to major markets such as New York or Washington. But I think that certainly from large cities, you're going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of options that are available to you. They will not be as frequent. And uh, in some instances may require a connection where you may have had a nonstop flight before. But as demand returns, all the airlines want to get back to a place where they're providing the full scope of services that you're used to seeing. I think you're also going to see that domestic travel is going to recover more quickly than international travel. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. The flights are shorter. They, you don't need to deal with what might be differential restrictions, one country to another, about uh, people coming in. And so I think you should expect that your domestic options will recover more quickly and your international options, there will be some lag in the, that service being fully restored. So the levels of service you were used to seeing. Well, thank you, Michael. I noticed that uh, Steve Finkelman, I understand you have a question, so let me turn it over to you. I do. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, I had this question before, but something you said a minute ago helped cue it up even more perfectly than I could have put it myself. You said, when you get on an airplane, I think there's two dimensions to this. Hey, I'm very impressed what I'm hearing when you get on an airplane, but what about before you get on the airplane? Mm -hmm. Meaning check-in, meaning TSA, meaning the terminal, before you, maybe before you get to the gate, baggage claim, the other parts outside of the airplane itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Are you hearing us the suggestions regarding that that part? Yeah, there is actually um, a, there are a number of activities uh, going on in that area. There is an effort uh, from an organization called the Gateway Airports Council to develop uh, a conops for how you deal with um, in implementing the appropriate uh, mechanisms at airports from the moment people arrive. And so uh, that's where a lot of this discussion around temperature screening at airports is coming from, that you want to catch people relatively early on as they're in what we like to call the travel ribbon, uh, as they're approaching um, critical uh, points in, in the airport. There are also, um, there's also work underway in terms of the check-in process itself. Can we do more with touchless screens, or in terms of how bags are handled, minimize the number of people that they need to go through. And changing the queuing so that you're not standing in very dense lines, uh, either at the check-in or at, uh, say, the security checkpoint. TSA has been in a number of discussions also about how they expand the screening process to include some degree of, of, um, of temperature screening and other health checks. This is a work in progress though. 
because um, you know while there is I think some consensus across the industry that the screening that temperature screening is an important solution, there are those that feel it's not the ideal solution. And uh, there are discussions about, um, okay, if you do a temperature screen and you get a positive, should there be a secondary type of screening? How are medical determinations made? And, and so on down the line. Then when you get to the other side of security, um, airports are thinking a lot about how they reconfigure the public spaces there. Those are the, the restaurants, the snack bars, the lounge areas, all to encourage a level of, of distance and spacing uh, between passengers. And so I think, yeah, all of these discussions are taking place, not only in flight, but also from the moment you arrive at the airport. And I see Maxine Clark, I think you had a question, so let me, let me turn it to you. Thank you uh, for giving us this information. It's um, humbling and, you know, we have to think about it, it's all there. I had a couple of uh, questions and then I have a suggestion because I think it could help us all. One is, um, I live in St. Louis and we use a lot of those regional airplanes which are very small. In fact, they, they either have two seats and then a one seat side. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how they're gonna, and most of the flights out of St. Louis, they even go to LaGuardia or DC or those kind of flights. How are they going to be able to operate those kind of flights in a, in a Midwest, Des Moines, St. Louis, uh, Kansas City, a lot of those kinds of flights. Uh, and then the other question was um, was an, a suggestion that I believe if the air maybe they're already doing this if the airport did a video every airport did one and took you through the process a, a, a good quality video that showed you the steps in your airport before you decided to make a trip you could decide that that was good enough for you um, and it would be an attractive one not in, not enhanced to fake you out but to give you a, a sense of confidence. You could click on that and know that your airport that you're coming from or the one that you're going to is going to make it as easy for you as possible. Um, this isn't like 9-11. This is going to be much more um, complicated. And I think at least for a longer period of time, probably. And I think we have to face into that. And how do we make it as hospitable for people to travel as possible? Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me take the second part of that first. I think that's a, that's a really good idea to illustrate for people what they can expect when they get to an airport. And that's certainly some, something that I'll suggest to the folks that are working in that area. You know, on the subject of air, aircraft configuration, uh, there is a lot of thought going into that. What everyone is doing right now is uh, really figuring out how you can just space people out in the, with the configuration of seats that you have. But I think it's probably fair to say that everyone understands that's not a long-term solution. That is simple, and right now passenger loads are low enough that that is a possibility in most instances. But you're quite correct, as those loads recover and in the absence of there being a vaccine, then uh, consideration has to be given to, hey, do we just physically space out the seats, put fewer that are in there? The airlines are also looking at, are there certain fleet configurations that they want to retire? Whether they're some of the small regional jets, replace them with something else, or the very large aircraft where there may not be the traffic to, um, to, to fill them. All this is a long way of saying that the industry is still figuring that out. You know, that, uh, you know, the, the steps that are being taken right now are interim steps. Uh, in terms of how we space uh, how we space passengers out on the aircraft that we have, 
have everyone wearing masks, have everyone wearing gloves and having the crews minimize contact. But we still have to figure out what those standards are going to be over the long run. What about international flights coming here? Like, how are they going to be? That maybe I feel to answer it, but I think that's a lot of us are concerned about that because that's how whether it came from China or it came from Europe, that's how we part of how we got uh, the contagion that we did. Yeah, although the airline industry does, it, it is a global industry, and best practices are widely shared across the entire industry. And so I think that it's uh, it's important that we all understand that what we're doing in the U.S. is we're very focused on the industry as it exists here, but we are the largest part of the global aviation industry. And there are organizations and operating practices that really span the entire globe. And I want to go back to something that I said at the opener. The airline industry does not compete on safety, and this falls into that category. There is, even today, very widespread sharing of practices as everyone's trying to figure this out together. And so there will be a level of international consistency that uh, the industry will adopt and that authorities will oversee across the globe. And I think that that is one thing that we should demand, but I think that there it's certainly something that will result just given the very nature of the industry. Uh, Representative Brad Schneider, I know that you had a question, and so I want to tee it over to you. Uh, thank you, and um, Michael, it's good to see you again. We met uh, over the winter. Just a reminder, I'm Max Slutsky's uh, friend. Oh, I know. It's great to see you again. <laughs> I, I wish you well. Um, you. And I saw in one of the comments that the, that the thought that the price of flying is going up, it's actually right now relatively low. I'm in Washington. I drove here because I didn't want to be on an airplane. The, Ticket though is half the regular price. It's $89 one way. Uh, my son's a zookeeper in St. Louis. Uh, he can fly home for less than $50 um, because they're trying to drive the demand. My question relates to you know, long term to have that spacing. Uh, as the, the, the planes, you know, planes are this, the size of the planes. People are, are going to want to sit at a safe distance, uh, but there's a cost of operating the planes. Right now, those costs are, are somewhat being supported, not somewhat, not substantially being supported by uh, federal assistance. Uh, over time, if that federal assistance starts to um, taper down, what's gonna be the impact uh, to uh, the airline? Yeah, and you know that's an important point. Uh, the airlines are a business and they need to have a sustainable business model. And so I think that they're, Distancing and wide spacing and all of that, I believe, is at best an interim solution. I think that uh, there will need to be a mechanisms in place, such as the ones that we're talking about, uh, blocking middle seats or, um, or masks, gloves, what have you. But I think that's why I made the point about a vaccine. People are just not going to be comfortable being close to one another unless there is this, a widespread public understanding that being close to someone isn't going to make me sick. And so, you know, I think that we need to think about this in the near term, but also in the longer term. You know, ultimately, I think that we have to be looking at ways of knocking out this, this virus, vaccines, and all the great work that's taking place in that area. 
it's taking a long time. And so these spacing and operating practices and so forth are an important bridge to get us there and to allow this industry to begin to recover. But it's going to take a long time. Uh, Jeff Bloomberg, I, I think, turn it over to you. I know you had a question. How will airlines survive with one-third fewer, capa less capacity? Um, and probably a decrease in the amount of business travel, given Zoom. I mean, I know I will probably reduce my business travel by at least a third, if not half, using Zoom much more frequently than I did in the past. Mm-hmm. I think there is um, an understanding in the airline industry that as we get to the other side of this, that uh, airlines will be smaller, that uh, it's going to take a while to rebuild the passenger levels that we've seen for the reasons that you've talked about. There will be some percentage of that travel that is going to be replaced by video conferencing applications and what have you. But people do want to connect with people in person. And I think that uh, that is something that is always going to be important. How people, how long it takes people to get comfortable with that is uh, something that is going to be determined by a whole lot of factors way beyond anything that, uh, everything that the airlines alone are doing. It's going to be um, part of this larger readjustment of society. But I do think that there's always going to be a significant uh, number of people that want to connect in person, that want to visit places that, uh, where they don't live, and uh, who want to be part of an industry that um, is founded on mobility. We just need to figure out uh, how the industry can address their near-term concerns, their longer-term concerns, and how the entire industry can ensure that we're maintaining safety in this new and expanded definition of what is safe in flight. I, I mean, I concur with you that people, humans are social animals. Mm -hmm. um, and Dan, you, you, I can agree with Dan. If you're not in an environment with somebody, you don't see the body language. Yeah. And there's a lot that you miss. And there's there's only so much you can gain by these video conferences. Mm -hmm. There's no social interaction afterwards. There's no ability to really create a, a great relationship. So I concur with you that people will travel, they'll interact. I do think for the next 12 to 24 months, it's going to be damn difficult. And much there'll be much more pain involved in the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Uh, you've many airline CEOs have talked about a ramp that looks like probably three three years. Some have said right. even longer than that. And so uh, it's it's going to be a long slog. And I think that that's why the airlines are taking the actions they're taking. That's why Congress and the administration have provided the support to to provide that bridge as we have to adapt to what the industry is going to look like in the future. Uh, Richard Livermore, I know you had a question, so you're on. Yes, uh, I'm sure you're informed by what happened after 911 when they had to develop, when the FAA had to develop all of its new security protocols. Uh, how adaptable are normal FAA oversight protocols to health protocols? And will FAA now 
be responsible for airline health protocols? You know, I think that's actually the critical question. And, uh, and to kind of revisit what happened after 9-11, you'll remember that an entirely new agency was created, the, the Transportation Security Administration, to address this whole question of airport security. Prior to 9-11, that was largely a contracted uh, service that was overseen by the FAA. And then ultimately TSA was folded into the new Department of Homeland Security. Now we're looking at a health hazard and the FAA rightly says they are not a public health agency. The FAA does have some responsibility as it relates to health of pilots to ensure that they meet some medical standard. But, you know, when you're looking at how do you check and assure the health of the traveling public, you have a bunch of agencies that are out there. And my fear is there is a lot of discussion taking place, but no one is in charge. And I think that is a decision for policymakers. You know, should the Centers for Disease Control be tasked with developing standards for travelers? Should they be responsible for, or should who should be responsible for promulgating regulations on what those standards actually need to be and ensure that they are complied with? There needs to be a level of consistency there. And uh, I wouldn't start from the premise that it, it, it falls to the FAA because I think there are valid questions of who has the best expertise and authorities to do it, or do new authorities need to be created for someone in order to ensure that they can develop those standards and ensure that they're met? Uh, Don Upton, uh, what's your question for Michael? And thank you for investing time in this conversation. The timing for me is great. I think others might share the same thing because uh, airport directors, heads of ports have been transparent, open, available for the past 10 to 20 days. And they're using the same standard dashboards and measures that you would know off the top of your head. But each one in every briefing talks about extreme changes in customer behaviors. But what they don't get to is how this changes our concept of the market, the catchment, leakage. And what I'm wondering is, are we facing radical change in what a catchment area looks like with leakage? And do we need to start looking at additional measures, what it means to be a competitive site, a financially strong airport in the future? Yeah, uh, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, and you're seeing that play out right now in the context of what does serving a market look like? Uh, some of the airlines have taken actions to consolidate their flights into a smaller number of airports in a given metropolitan area. Going back to, you know, Dan's question about uh, consumer choice. So maybe that means um, I have to, if I live in the Bay Area, drive to San Francisco as opposed to having flight options at Oakland or San Jose. Um, you, that same market is being served, but it's not being served with the frequency and the richness of options that might have existed in the past. And that is something that I think the industry needs to figure out and that the public, in terms of its expectations, needs to understand. 
Yes, I would. Uh, you know, I, I used to live in Washington and I always loved the idea of how close uh, Reagan National Airport was versus driving to Dulles Airport uh, to get to where I now live in northern Utah. But, you know, at the same time, I have to recognize that the business has to work for the airlines and uh, being able to provide service is premised on being able to cover your costs. And those are people costs. Those are fuel costs. That's cost of aircraft and everything associated with that. And so if the demand is going to be depressed for a while, yes, then we do have to rethink what that catchment area looks like. And um, I think policymakers need to be looking at it in the context of how do you ensure that you have some level of service to most areas, but that doesn't necessarily mean every single airport that had um, a level of service that they're entitled to having exactly that level of service as we're dealing with this much reduced demand. Uh, Stamen Ogilvie, I think you had a question. Yeah, I'm just saying, do you think we as a uh, American society have the chance of raising prices and getting people back at low load factors or are we uh, politically going to be stymied from that and leave ourselves saddled with big operating deficits that have to be uh, covered by some type of subsidy? Well, I certainly hope that the long term is not one of, of subsidy, but I think that what it does require is for the industry and its government partners to be very transparent in terms of telling the story that uh, you make a really good point, that this is an industry that, whose success and depends on high load factors, and that's what's resulted, resulted in low airfares and the choice that we've all come to experience. And so we've got to get comfortable with the notion that if we can't have those load factors, the companies need to operate as a business. And that business requires that it cover its cost and yield a reasonable return. And so you can manage some of that through things like reducing capacity, uh, overall numbers of flights, uh, numbers of airports served as we were talking before. Yes. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we have to find what that right balance is. I think that over time, loads will come back as we address the medical issues associated with the coronavirus. But I think that uh, we also need to recognize that it's going to take a while and the companies are going to need to take actions so that they can continue to operate and uh, reduce burning cash and all of the things that a business has to do to be able to sustain itself. Uh, William Barger, I think you had a question. Yes, well, thanks. Uh, this is one of my first uh, times listening in, but uh, I was concerned about the ventilation capabilities on these aircraft. I've seen uh, studies that says somebody coughs or sneezes and they can, uh, the droplets can go three, three aisles up, rows up, three back, and two on either side. So I'm not sure that we can achieve this decreased load factor of, you know, keeping middle seats open or every other row, it still doesn't, isn't going to protect the, uh, the, the uh, passenger, is it? Well, 
the aircraft are the, the aircraft all have different characteristics and the whole idea the whole design and operation of the ventilation systems is something that the airlines and the manufacturers are spending a lot of time looking at and continuing to focus on improving the air handling in aircraft uh, does change pretty frequently. There is a lot of debates, like in some aircraft types, about the direction of the flow. Does it go top to bottom? Does it go front to back? And so on down the line. A lot of work being done on enhanced filtration techniques and everything associated with that. And so it's one of the important things that people are looking at. Um, I think that rebuilding that passenger confidence then though depends there's no silver bullet this is an important factor but other factors also enter into play as well such as the cleaning protocols that are out there and the operating practices but this one's very much uh, on the table and getting a lot of focus by those in the industry uh, Michael this is Dan I'm going to ask one follow-up question to that because uh I'm not an expert on this, but I've generally thought or believed what I've heard over the years is that the air quality control systems and air quality on planes is actually very high. I mean, compared to say an office building. And I'm mm -hmm. kind of wondering, can the airlines have bragging rights about that? I mean, I want to build up the confidence of Americans to get back on airplanes. Is there some bragging rights here that the air quality systems on planes is high and that's a plus or am I, overstating that? No, I don't think you're overstating it. And I do think that uh, you're starting to see some of the manufacturers and some of the airlines talk more about that. What they're talking about are the what the exchange rates are in terms of how often the cabin air is, is refreshed and uh, also what the filtration systems are. And I think you make a really good point, Dan, in terms of being able to compare that to other environments that uh, people would find themselves in, whether it's an office building, whether it's a shopping mall, a supermarket, and what have you. Uh, because part of what we're addressing is what people don't fully understand. And I think you're making a really important point that putting it in language that people can understand and in comparisons uh, with what they experience day in and day out would go a long way toward building that confidence. So oh, if, if I could just add, so so I'm Larry Hurst, but I'm chairman of Hawaiian Airlines, and one of my co-directors is on this call, Rick Swern. And we just finished a couple-day board meeting where this topic was discussed. I'm no expert on the filtration systems, but the CEO of our airline described them as similar to what you find in hospitals. So um, I think that will get more play. I think it will be highly scrutinized, and so we want to be sure everything we say is entirely accurate. But that's how it was described to our board for what that's worth. Yeah, and by, I, I might add to that, just based on some knowledge I have, that I think that's correct, okay? I think that the truth sometimes helps. I think the air quality on airplanes is strong. I mean, that, that there's a lot of evidence of that. And so how that sorts out and how that really fits into the way droplets travel, I don't know, but at least as we're trying to rebuild up, uh, Robert Zadig, I, I see you had a question. There seems to be an assumption on this uh, Zoom meeting, as well as in the public at large, that the capacity which the airlines enjoyed before the virus hit was sort of the standard, and therefore 
the airlines will be at great risk as that volume of business goes down. And I don't understand that. And the reason for my confusion is as follows. Uh, business travel, I think, as was said earlier in this broadcast, is going to decline uh, because it's kind of silly in many ways. And we're learning we can accomplish what we want as a business matter without travel. And I think that's sort of a given, more or less. We don't know how much that's a given. And we have had business travel subsidizing uh, leisure travel. That's always been the case and just a fact of life. Now, assuming airline travel volume decreases, it'll be a lot of business travel will decline. Why? I don't understand why that is threatening to the airlines after they adjust and reduce capacity. All that would be required, it would seem to me, is reduce capacity, charge the right price, and the profits are there once again. So I don't understand the correlation between reduced capacity, or, or rather reduced business volume, to whatever extent, and long-term viability of the airlines after they make the capital investment adjustment. I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think that what we're talking about is how long it's going to take to get there and what it's going to take to build some level of public confidence in terms of what that new equilibrium is going to look like. And there are a lot of factors in that, whether it's the mix of business versus leisure travelers, numbers of flights, capacity of flights, and all of those, you know, I think all the things that you're raising there. The question, I, I think there is a question about, I, I think there is a public expectation out there that something needs to be done to ensure my own personal health as part of that flight experience. And I think that how the airlines go about doing that and not just the airlines, but the industry and its government partners, how they address that question will actually make it easier for the industry to make this transition and to develop a new operating model that uh, will sustain it in the years ahead. Uh, Bill Gostin, I think you had a question. Yes, I do. Thanks. Thanks for recognizing me. Uh, I think that what you just said, Michael, tees up my question perfectly. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm 74 years old. According to the CDC, if I catch COVID-19, I have 25 times the chance of dying from it as my 35-year-old son does. Uh, so I can tell you, I'm not going to get on a plane until I can be assured that I've been tested before I get on and everybody else has been too. Uh, and I think the sooner the airlines recognize that you know, older discretionary flyers are not gonna be rejoining their business until they have that kind of assurance, uh, the sooner we're gonna be able to move back to normal. My question is, has the airline industry taken this on board? No, I think the airline industry has taken that on board. The airline industry, though, 
is I think raising a valid question, which is, okay, they need, they agree that there needs to be some means of ensuring public health and safety. They don't want this to be a competitive factor, one airline to another. And they would like leadership from the government in establishing what that standard needs to be and to ensure that there is a level of consistency across the industry globally. And so, you know, I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying, Bill. I think my only question, my only comment on that would be, this is not for the airlines alone to figure out. This is something that needs to be addressed by the government working in collaboration with the industry to address this as part of the much larger recovery. I couldn't agree more. Is there any sign that the government is moving in this direction? Well, there's, there are a lot of conversations taking place. <laughs> Uh, what I worry about is what I said in my opening comment, that you have a lot of team meetings taking place. It is not at all clear to me who's in charge. Thank you. Uh, Michael, this has been a very enlightening and uh, I think very enjoyable uh, educational uh, session with you. I think we have time for maybe one more question. And Dan, Doug Scrivener. Uh, Mike, uh, I was curious as to whether passenger airplanes as freight haulers has any significant, not necessarily material impact in the transition or more longer term for the business model of the airlines? Uh, it, it, ha it certainly does in the very near term. You're seeing that today. Uh, you're seeing uh, that passenger aircraft or you're seeing freight being carried in the passenger cabin. And the airlines you know, have felt an important uh, responsibility to help ferry critical supplies to different points around the country. And so, yes, cargo is an, an extremely important part of this um, as we go through the near term, but uh, that is not obviously a long-term uh, and sustainable business model. Thank you. All right, so Glenn, do you have some closing thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Dan. And thank you so much, Michael. Um, you know, educating this group, will um, pay dividends down the road. Um, and so thank you very much for your time. And um, if you'll bear with us, just some um, house cleaning for uh, 60 seconds. I wanted to keep everyone posted on the effort to um, create a national fundraising network. And so today, all the city leaders met. We set goals by city that will be discussed and massaged a bit. And we set out a plan for um, timing of events for the next five months with um, monthly city meetings that hopefully everyone on this call will attend and encourage your um, friends to attend as well. And then a, a large event in September that you will hear more about. And the tone of the call had a wide spectrum from this is urgent, again, for some of the issues that Michael raised for federal government to help in certain ways and for and not just in airlines but in hospitals and so on and also that we need to be patient and um and educate people and and, and go at this thoughtfully and methodically and so just wanted to emphasize for everyone that this, this is about education 
of no labels and problem solvers. It is about building the network. And um, at the right moment, the we will ask, or in effect, the organization will ask by itself because the closer you get, the better everything looks here. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. It's, it's in progress, it's, it's happening. Thank everyone and I'll, I'll turn it back to Dan. And, and thanks again, Michael. Uh, Michael, uh, let me speak, I guess I, I'll say on behalf of myself as the host, and uh, I think I can speak for all of the no-label business leaders. I don't think we could have asked anybody that could have had any more knowledge or ability to field these questions. And the fact that you've taken this much time with us, we're all very, very grateful. You just heard some stark figures from the former head of the FAA. Flights are down over 60% and passengers are down 90% across the U.S., and we are not likely to see a rapid rebound. For companies navigating the economic downturn, travel is often one of the first things cut and one of the last things to return. The same can be said for families whose finances have been affected. According to Michael Huerta, public confidence in the safety of air travel will not be restored until there is a vaccine. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.